Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks. I'm Simon Long, the finance editor. Coming up this week, we'll be hearing about Theresa May's green light for Hinkley Point. It looks a bit like a white elephant and a very, very expensive white elephant too. A ticking time bomb at the heart of Western economies. It's only now, I think, that the politicians, workers are starting to wake up to the issue. That means that this is going to come more and more into the headlines over the next decade or so. And whether it could be Deutschland über alles in the European tech scene. There have been a lot more venture capitalists, a lot more startup setting up in Berlin, and much more interesting, creative, disruptive companies. So first, in July, we covered the decision by Theresa May, Britain's Prime Minister, to put the brakes on one of her predecessor's most ambitious projects. That's an enormous nuclear power station to be built at Hinkley Point in Somerset in Western England, with the help of French energy company EDF, an investment from China. It marked a symbolic break with David Cameron and with his finance minister, George Osborne, but it's proved short-lived. Last week, it was announced that the delay was over and that with the addition of some new conditions to the deal, the project, Hinkley Point C, is back on. Our British business editor, Richard Cockett, joins me now. Richard, why has Theresa May changed her mind? Well, over the summer, she's looked at the deal and basically I think political considerations have trumped Um, her and her advisors' fears over the security aspects of the deal, the safety aspects of the deal. Basically, I think it was one of those deals that advanced too far to really back out of. And in particular, there were the relationships with France and China to think about. France, EDF is a a state-owned company. They're building the thing. And China has invested £6 billion, committed £6 billion to the project, about a third of the total um, amount. And I think at this point, especially post-Brexit, she could not risk alienating two of Britain's most important trading partners by scrapping the deal. So you're saying that basically the deal agreed is more or less the same as the one that she put the brakes on before? It's more or less the same, yes. I mean, the, the, the only difference really is that she's put some conditions on future foreign investments in what's called critical infrastructure projects. And in particular, she says Britain's now going to take a strategic share, which has not been exactly analysed yet as to what that means, but Britain will take a strategic turn in future nuclear power stations. So, you know, that's some sort of sop to those who feared that these sort of deals would allow foreign powers to hold Britain to ransom in these big infrastructure deals. The Economist has taken quite a strong line opposing the deal. What's wrong with it? 
there are those concerns, safety and security. But the biggest thing that's wrong with it is just an awful deal for the British taxpayer to hook the French in, EDF in. They have been promised that they can sell their electricity at an enormous price, £95 per megawatt hours, which is over twice what is now the wholesale price for electricity. Moreover, it's £18 billion going on an untested nuclear technology, pounds that could also go to developing alternative carbon-free technology. So it looks a bit like a white elephant and a very, very expensive white elephant too. And, and what, if anything, has been agreed about the other or future nuclear power plant at Bradwell, the one that was supposed to be built with Chinese technology. That was part of the motivation for China getting involved with it. Yeah, and that's not that's not clear. Uh, that remains somewhat mysterious. Yes, as you say, one of the reasons for Chinese wanted to get involved with this, it was sold to them as you get into Hinkley and then Britain will allow the Chinese to build a reactor at Bradwell. And the attraction for the Chinese is that that will be subject to the usual regulatory hurdles of the British nuclear industry, which are very, very stringent. So if the Chinese reactor clears all those hurdles, they can sell that all around the world to advanced economies, to developed economies. So that's their entry to the very, very lucrative world nuclear market. What's unclear at the moment is exactly what's been agreed with Bradwell, whether they've got an automatic right to build at Bradwell because of Hinkley. So we're, we're all watching that. Richard, I think you've made fairly clear that you think this is a, a bad decision or a bad, bad decision to go back to, to the project. Is it irreversible or is there any hope from your perspective that it might might again be quashed. Well, three things will could go wrong. Uh, first of all, there will probably still be legal objections um, to this from environmentalists and maybe from taxpayers' alliances, etc., who will continue argue, to argue that this is an awful deal. Secondly, as I say, the technology is untested. So technologically, it's still very much up in the air. And of course, you know, this present gut, Theresa May has stumbled about uh, over this project. And what happens in two years' time if a Labour government, perhaps, or a Liberal Democratic government who are absolutely opposed to this come into power. They'll look at this, and if not too much money has already been spent on it, they could back out of it. So Hingley Point sees detractors haven't given up yet? Certainly not. British business editor Richard Cockett, thank you very much. Thank you. So what do you think? Is the nuclear option a waste of money or the only hope for the climate? Let us know. We're at Economist Radio on Twitter, and you can send emails to radio at economist.com. Now, with all the short-term problems that seem constantly to arise around money, whether it's for the individual or the state, it can be hard to take a proper look towards the future. But according to a briefing this week from our Buttonwood columnist, Philip Coggan, the neglected future may be about to make its present felt with a vengeance, in the form of underfunded pension obligations around the world. Philip, how big a problem are we looking at when it comes to pensions? It's huge, Simon. Uh, There are some countries where their public sector pensions that are due are worth three times their current GDP. In the US, the the gap of underfunding is several trillion dollars if measured properly. And in the corporate sector, we've been seeing in recent months with the collapse of uh, British firms like BHS and the uh, trouble at Tata Steel, that funds can go bust with huge deficits and then uh, something has to be found to fill in the gap. You mentioned Britain and America. Are they the worst hit countries? They're the worst hit because they have 
systems that make the deficits explicit. So they've gone out, created funds which have uh, invested money to pay for long-term pensions, and those are short of cash. In many European countries, they've made the same promises to their workers, but they haven't a separate fund for it. It's all funded on a pay-as-you-go basis out of current taxes. So the problem will still creep up on them. It's just we don't have the same kind of immediate numbers or headlines about it. Is this basically a problem of progress, that we're all living longer, life expectancies have increased? Is, is that at the root of it? That's one of the biggest problems. So yes. And on top of that, governments have often insisted that you add on inflation linking to the pensions, spouses' benefits to the pensions, and sometimes health care as well. And all that has added enormously to the cost. Is, is that it then? Is that, is that all we're looking at, just a, a better, better health care? No, the other big factor is interest rates. So the cost of a pension is really a whole series of future payments which you're going to make year after year after person. So it's very much linked to long-term interest rates. If you have a pension pot and you try and go out and buy an income for the rest of your life, then if interest rates are low, you buy a lot less than you did before. So if a Briton retired now at 65, they'd get about half as much as they would out of a pension as they would 15 years ago. And as interest rates have fallen ever further, then the cost has shot up enormously. And governments and companies have just not put enough aside to cover it. You make it sound almost an insoluble problem. I mean, life expectancies are unlikely to shorten, interest rates are unlikely to shoot up anytime soon. What, what can be done? Well, uh, there are only two things that can be done, really, which is save more and work longer. People who get to uh, 65, who haven't got a luxury defined benefit final salary pension when they get there, find they can't afford to retire and so will work longer as a consequence. But the key thing is to get more cash into these funds. And the difficulty is that companies can struggle to do this. This is money they're going to have to divert from investing in new plant and equipment to move over to the pension funds. And governments have to do it in the form of higher taxes. And this is very unpopular. Does that mean we're likely to face uh, some kind of crisis, some kind of crunch point? Or is it more just of a problem that's going to accumulate and get worse over the years? It's in the nature of pensions that it's a long running sort of like air escaping from a balloon. It's only now, I think, that the politicians, workers are starting to wake up to the issue. That means that this is going to come more and more into the headlines over the next decade or so. And presumably more pressure on governments around the world to, to intervene and to do more to solve the crisis. The difficulty, again, is that this is always a problem that might be solved five or ten years down the line, whereas the political pain of increasing taxes to deal with it or cutting benefits to retired uh, people who tend to vote more often than young people, those are two very nasty alternatives. Uh, So it only really uh, gets dealt with when you come to a crunch, when the city is facing bankruptcy, when the fund is about to raise uh, run out of money. And, of course, at that point, the hole is very large. So it's a problem we're likely to bequeath to our children and grandchildren. Yes, I'm afraid so. Uh, And you could almost see the the world is divided into younger people who are going to have to work longer and end up with less generous pensions and people who have already close to or at retirement who have managed to escape with a very uh, decent lifestyle and with, of course, in Britain and America, often uh, very expensive houses which the uh, younger generation can't afford to buy. Philip Coggan, Buttonwood, thank you very much. Thank you. Now... In the past on Money Talks, we've spoken about the rise of big companies and a new generation of tech giants in particular to positions of greater and greater prominence in the world economy. 
But these tech superstars have tended to cluster in certain places, in America and China especially, and it's been a problem for the European economy that it doesn't have a major tech powerhouse of its own to compete. One company that's been seeking to change that is the German firm Rocket Internet. Demand for online services that meet these basic needs is growing exponentially. The global smartphone revolution is letting Rocket Internet meet that demand. But is Rocket Internet a contender or a pretender? Is the tech scene in Berlin really primed to produce a Google or a Facebook of its own? Adam Roberts, our European business and finance correspondent, joins me now down the line. Adam, who are Rocket Internet? Well, Rocket got a lot of attention a couple of years ago. They had an IPO. Uh, their public listing back in 2014 generated great excitement and obviously raised some money. Uh, Rocket Internet had an approach to the digital economy that was quite European, you might say. It, it matched together rather cautious and stuffy investors, uh, German capitalists with lots of money and who, who believed they needed a, a proper digital approach, together with those who wanted to build companies. Often they came out of business school and the ideas they got were not really their own creative inventions, but they copied ideas. So they saw that clever American startups are doing things and Rocket decided to make its own versions to internationalize those startups, to take them to new markets and to execute the building of those companies very efficiently and very fast. And Rocket did well. But how does the future look for it? I mean, is it, is it on an upward course? Is it going to be a European Google or Facebook? No, sadly, Rocket is not going to be. And in effect, it was a, a copycat platform. It, it built some good individual holding companies. There's an online clothing company called Zalando that does rather well. There are some online uh, efforts in places like Nigeria and India and Russia. Um, but they've actually been struggling. It's quite hard to, to make a lot of money with this model. And back at the beginning of September, Rocket announced that it was actually writing down the value of, of many of its holdings. And Rocket itself is having to rethink the model of what it does to become more of an investor and much less of a company builder. And how about Berlin itself? Is, is that going to become Europe's Silicon Valley? Well, the great thing that Rocket did for Berlin was to put it on the map. Before Rocket did what it did, Berlin was home to some interesting small startups, but really nothing to compare, certainly not with Silicon Valley, but nothing really to compare with other European cities. But in the last few years, on the tales of Rocket's success, there have been a lot more uh, venture capitalists, a lot more startup setting up in Berlin, and much more interesting, creative, disruptive companies. And so if you look in Berlin now, no one really gets excited about Rocket anymore. They're much more excited about new startups. So the German capital's prospects in a way look better than German's leading internet company? I think that's right. There are venture capitalists, people coming in from Israel, from London, from all over the place, seeing opportunities there. So yes, I think Berlin has much better prospects than Rocket Internet. Adam Roberts, thank you very much for joining us. Well, that's it for Money Talks this week. In London, this is The Economist. Economist. 